Breeze Ray. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Breezeway, the coronavirus special. As if we could talk about anything else right now. This 17th day of March in the year of our hell lord 2020. It is dominating the global conversation in all aspects of life. From the economy, to politics, to entertainment, to comics. So, what else are we going to talk about now? On this month's episode, I've got a look at our big wet boy's response to this global pandemic, and an interview with writer Ted Anderson, the man behind Aftershock's Orphan Age. I've also got a personal note as we all struggle through this uncertain time. But as always, we start with comics. This month, I wanted to share some of my favorite post-apocalyptic comics. You know, for no reason. Parentheses. But seriously, though, things are pretty fucked. However, they are not that fucked. I'm not stocking up on guns and ammo as of right now, although I would never do those things. I am stocking up on Denty Moore... Um, ready-to-eat meals, but that's neither here nor there. Now, I will say here at the beginning that some comics, like The Walking Dead and Why the, Ma- Why the Last Man, aren't going to be on list, uh, this list because I haven't read them. I mean, I can't read everything, people. Although I did read a little Walking Dead and it was okay? Eh, question mark? Anyway, let's get to the shit that I've actually read. First... Evil Empire. Max Bemis's book is not necessarily post-apocalyptic. Some of these books on the list aren't ex- tidy examples of post-apocalyptic literature. But it does envision a fascist takeover of the American government. And that's apocalyptic enough for me. Under this new government, there's only one rule. No interference in letting people do whatever they want. So we are left with government-sanctioned, unimaginable cruelty. Fun! Next on the list, Crossed. All right, here's a more traditional post-apocalyptic book. Now, as a disclaimer, this book is 100% fucked up. Fucked up. Imagine letting Garth Ennis do whatever he wanted. Really. And that sounds like a very poor uh, business choice. But Avatar, surprise, Avatar did it. So, uh, Crossed is a zombie apocalypse book with a shit bucket of gratuitous violence and gross, creepy sex stuff. But really, it's super fucked. However, when Ennis and other people who played in the universe pull back from the shock value, it is as probing as the best zombie literature out there. So it's not a bad read if you can put aside all of the gross shit that someone should have told Ennis, hey, tone it down like 10 notches. Next, letter 44. Again, not a standard post-apocalyptic read, but this is one that, like some others on this list, turned the American political system upside down. Let's imagine 
George W. Bush gets advanced warning of an alien presence in our galaxy and launches a super secret mission to determine whether it's a threat. Except he can't finish this project in his terms and he leaves everything to Barack Obama. The classic pitch for Charles Soule's book is The West Wing plus The X-Files, and I think that's right on the nose. And the entire series is worth reading for the final issue alone, which is really a hopeful message, which is something we could certainly use right now. Now, next on the list, here is one that is new this week, The Resistance from Artists, Writers, and Artisans, which is a publisher I may have to support in spite of its name. Imagine a deadly global pandemic, a real fucking stretch right now, I know, where 95% of the infected die until the virus just stops. The survivors in America back a new fascist political movement that'll face opposition from the 5% who survived the virus and now have superpowers because of it. An interesting spin on the genre, I think. Uh, But please see the most recent uh, WMQ editorial from our man Dan, who has some very nice thoughts on the book as well. A bit more critical than I am, but solid thoughts. Next, one of the books so very near to my heart, Warlord of Appalachia. Another book where the American political system is destroyed. In this one by Philip K. Johnson, we have a media-obsessed president, suspiciously like Donald Trump, serving in the wake of the Second American Civil War. He leads the brutal occupation of Kentucky, which is the last holdout state, until one man rises up to punch him right in his stupid fucking face. One of my favorite comics in the whole world, and it is an ongoing goddamn shame that we haven't gotten a second volume. I'm still holding out hope, though. One day. One day. Finally, Orphanage. What if all the adults around the world dropped dead suddenly? How would the kids carry on? What society would they build? What would they keep? What would they create on their own? Ted Anderson tackles those questions in a tight, great miniseries from Aftershock that came out last year. And he'll be on later to tell you all about it. But first, when we come back from the break, Donald Trump and the coronavirus. A perfect shitstorm. Up next on The Breezeway.
there's just something about the strings, isn't there? Like they resonate with the harmony of your soul, speaking to the depths of your heart. But you wouldn't understand that, would you? Because you're a simpleton, a mouth breather, who hasn't even considered signing up for the Weekly Q newsletter from WMQComics.com. Like the strings, the newsletter calls to you with its perfect collection of the best of the week, along with Dan's weekly editorial. Listen, it calls to you. It speaks to you. Sign up for the newsletter. Do it. Do it now. Welcome back to the Breezeway. Today on the B Block, let's talk about Donald Trump and his response to the coronavirus. I'm going to play for you four distinct moments in time that reflect the president, his approach, and his seriousness as to dealing with this global pandemic. First, his thoughts from today. Follow up, um, one on the economy and the other on the broader picture here, but just to follow up on my colleague, some people did note that your tone seemed more somber yesterday. You talked about that August timeline. Did you see a projection? Some people thought perhaps that two million potentially that could die maybe prompted part of that. Was there a shift in tone? I didn't think, I mean, I have seen that where people uh, actually liked it, but I didn't feel different. I've always known this is a, this is a real, this is a pandemic. I felt it was a pandemic long before it was called a pandemic. All you had to do is look at other countries. I think now it's in almost 120 countries all over the world. Uh, no, I've always viewed it as very serious. There was no difference yesterday from days before. I feel the tone is similar, but uh, some people said it wasn't. Last one on the economy, your former economic... Now, let's step back in time to a week ago. So we just had a great meeting, uh, tremendous unity in the Republican Party, and we're working on a lot of different things. We've also had some very good updates on the virus. Uh, that's working out very smoothly, tremendous people. Uh, it's a tremendous task force. They have done a great job, not a good job, a great job. As you know, it's about 600 cases. It's about 26 deaths within our country. And uh, had we not acted quickly, that number would have been substantially more. But we, uh, we just had a meeting on stimulus, and you'll be hearing about it soon, but it was a great meeting. There's great unity within the Republican Party. Also, some very good numbers coming out of some countries where it started earlier, and we're seeing some fairly good numbers come out of those countries. That's a good thing, including China. And 
they've released numbers and we've gotten some numbers from China that look pretty promising. So we'll be able to further report it. Well, I, I don't think it's a big deal. I would do it. I don't feel that uh, any reason. I feel extremely good. I feel very good. But I guess it's not a big deal to get tested and I, something I would do. But again, uh, spoke to the White House doctor, terrific guy, talented guy. He said he sees no reason to do it. There's no symptoms, no anything. Right now, I guess we're at 26 deaths. And if you look at the flu, the flu for this year, we're eight million, we're, we're looking at 8,000 deaths. And, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of cases, but we have 8,000 deaths. So you have 8,000 versus 26 deaths at this time. But look, the biggest thing that we did was stopping the inflow of people early on. And that was weeks ahead of schedule, weeks ahead of what other people would have done. In fact, other people mostly would probably not have done it even till now. And that's made a big difference. And we're prepared and we're doing a great job with it. And it will go away. Just stay calm. It will go away. We want to protect our shipping industry, our cruise uh, industry, cruise ships. Uh, we want to protect our airline industry. Very important. Uh, but everybody has to be vigilant and has to be careful. Back yet again to February 27th. He said yesterday that they believe it's inevitable that the virus will spread in the United States and it's not a question of if but when. Do you agree with that assessment? Well, I don't think it's inevitable. It probably will. It possibly will. It could be at a very small level or it could be at a larger level. Whatever happens, we're totally prepared. We have the best people in the world. Uh, you see that from the study. Uh, we have the best prepared people, the best people in the world. Uh, Congress is willing to give us much more than we're even asking for. That's nice for a change. Uh, but we are uh, totally ready, willing, and able. It's a term that we use. It's ready, willing, and able. We have, we have, uh, it's going to be very well under control. Now, it may get bigger, it may get a little bigger, it may not get bigger at all. We'll see what happens. Tonight, you're Sorry. minimizing the risk, the danger of the virus. Are you telling the Americans, except for the ones who are sick, not to change any of their behaviors? No, I think you have to always, you know, I do it a lot anyway, as you probably heard. Wash your hands, <laughs> stay clean. You don't have to necessarily grab every handrail unless you have to. You know, you do certain things that you do when you have the flu. I mean, view this the same as the flu. When somebody sneezes, I mean, I try and bail out as much as possible with this sneezing. I had a man come up to me a week ago. I hadn't seen him in a long time. and. I said, how are you doing? He said, fine, fine. He, hug he hugs me, kiss me. I said, are you well? He says, no. <laughs> he said, I have the worst fever and the worst flu. And he's hugging and kissing me. So I said, excuse me. I went there, I started washing my hands. So you have to do that. You know, this is, I, I really think, doctor, you want to treat this like you treat the flu, right? And, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be. And finally, to a rally, February 10th. Our opponents, the money that's pouring in, people don't even believe it. And by the way, the virus, they're working hard. Looks like by April, you know, in theory, when it gets a little warmer, it miraculously goes away. I hope that's true. But we're doing great in our country. China, I spoke with President Xi, and they're working very, very hard. And I think it's going to all work out fine. Rough stuff, I tell you, rough, rough stuff. But I think it's going to work out good. We only have 11 cases, and they're all getting better. We talked on the pilot about how dangerous 
Donald Trump is. And it's not so much that he represents any one particular dangerous thing in that, well, perhaps that he's totally unqualified uh, to serve. But he is a president who does not live in our world. He doesn't live in a world of facts. And for day-to-day business, this is fine. When things are going well or as well as they can go on a day-to-day basis, um, the country has functioned with someone who is totally checked out and in their own world. However, where we find ourselves in this moment of dealing with a very real threat, a threat that requires science and facts and knowledge to effectively combat, as far as counting on the president is concerned, we're fucked. We are all alone in this. We have each other. We have local and state officials who, in many instances, have been more reliable and have done more than the federal government. Although we can certainly talk about some moves that these various players are making. Uh, Mike DeWine's decision to unilaterally suspend uh, Ohio elections is a little sketchy, especially with November coming up. But... We'll leave that for now. But again, we cannot count on the federal government. We cannot look to Washington for salvation here. If we ever could look to Washington for salvation, this is going to have to come from your local officials, your state officials, and the people in your community. Because we have a man in the presidency who's not on this planet with us. He's simply not. If he ever was, he's not now. And we're going to have to deal with that as we go forward. Whew. Okay, after the break, Ted Anderson on his Aftershock series, Orphanage. Coming up next, here on The Breezeway. You caught me in the middle of catching some crawdads. Mmm, I just love these here mud bugs. Yes, sorry, I do. But you know what else I love? That there good comics coverage at WMQComics.com. It's them previews and reviews that just satisfy my refined taste for comics coverage. 
Ooh-wee, I just got me another one. Me and Big Mama gonna be eating fine tonight, yes, sir. But before I throw these here critters in the pot, remember, WMQ Comics is a place to go for your comics coverage. Tell them Willie sent you. Ooh-wee! Breezeway. Up next is an interview with Ted Anderson, comic book author and middle school librarian. Just a wonderful, delightful uh, combination. We had a great conversation, and I'd be lying if I said I I didn't seek him out um, because of the situation we find ourselves in. As everyone out there is becoming an amateur epidemiologist. I remember reading about the virus and about how children basically aren't affected. They may be carriers, but um, they are certainly not affected in the way that older individuals are. And I recalled in the back of my mind, say, there was a comic book I remember reading that um, all of the adults uh, were killed and the the children, again, were not affected. And then I sort of had to refresh my brain exactly what book that was. And it's like, oh, Orphanage from Aftershock by Ted Anderson. And he was good enough uh, to come on and, and talk to me about that book. And again, we had such a nice conversation. And, and I want to point out, as I did in the open, that Orphan Age is a great book. And as Ted and I get into, it may have a future. Um, Ted himself puts it at better than 50%. And I really hope he gets a chance to finish what he started. As we talk about, he's got 20 issues plotted out. We've had the first five. So there's a full 75% of this world left unexplored. And I really hope he gets a chance to finish what he started. Again, we talk about a lot. Uh, he is he's a, a ball of energy and caffeine, and, and he was great to talk to. Um, there is... A little bit of a break midway when the Skype decides to fuck up on us. But um, it's, uh, you know, it's a little surprise that you can look forward to. Anyway, here is Ted Anderson on everything and Orphan Age. And here we go. I always like to start when I have a guest on with a plug sandwich. So I want to talk about the things that you want people to see and talk about and look at uh, at the beginning. And then we will hit those plugs again when we're all done. So wh oh, what perfect. do you want people to, to find about you uh, out there? 
Oh God, hopefully nothing. Um, no. <laughs> uh, I mean, my Twitter is always going to be the best place to find anything about me. I don't use it as much as I should being a, you know, social media obsessed content creator type. Uh, Twitter is obviously the place I need to be spending the most of my effort. I really like Tumblr and I know what that says about me. Probably. I, I guess, I don't know. Is that still a, a stereotype? Anyway. Um, I still like Tumblr for its weirdness, but uh, I should be getting more into Twitter. But as always, you can find me on that at Ted Lee Anderson, T-E-D-L-Y-A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N. And that's also my Tumblr and I think like my Xbox gamer tag and a bunch of other shit, too. So, you know, if you see a Ted Lee Anderson around, it's probably me. Um, and that's I mean, that's where I talk about all my stuff, which as of right now, I'm kind of in the middle of things happening. Which is to say, I'm not going to have anything really interesting to say for at least like six months, probably. The story uh, of everyone in comics. Exactly. Well, it's like it's just that everything happened to time out at just the exact right moment where I've got I've got a book that will come out in the fall, um, a YA novel that I love to talk about as well. Um, but and then like I've got other things in the works with various people. I got to be nice and vague here, but none of them are at a point where I can announce them or talk about them at all. Um, so it's 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 a little bit of a draught. I mean, I can, and like all the stuff I've done for aftershock is already more or less out. You know, it's released. It's, it's in book form now. Um, I mean, I did, I, I'm guessing you've had me on here to talk about my most recent two issues from my little pony friendship is magic. Like I'm, I'm just assuming issues 87 and 88, uh, about the Draytona breach race with, with rainbow dash and, and big Macintosh, right? Like look, that's like, <laughs> it's, it's 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 riveting, right? It's, it's riveting. absolutely riveting. Um, I I have a a friend who is in uh, in the brony culture. Um, oh, real okay. <laughs> uh, I know I know nothing about it. It's adorable. Um, not my thing. No, not I, my thing. And I do joke. I mean, I I <laughs> I like obviously. I, obviously, I like it. I'm writing comics for it. Uh, clearly, but like. I understand a hundred percent if it's not anybody's thing because it, yes, absolutely. It's not going to be everybody's thing. It, it, it's a certain vibe and it's a certain energy. And I just, I can't, I can't get that excited. Okay. Yeah. I just, no, I can't. No, it's Nate. Hey, no, I get it. It's, it. It is how it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's like, that's my most recent thing, but it's not exactly, you know, firing up the the internet and and burning down all the comics news sites so like at the moment there's not a whole lot on my twitter except for memes about coronavirus and people reacting to coronavirus and other horrible things about coronavirus which you know that's what everybody's feed is like right now well, yeah uh, then, then that's, um, <laughs> that's that's a nice segue thank you yeah, th yeah thank um you. so how are things right now in in minnesota how how are you doing up there so I, okay. So I should start off by saying I personally am not as I, the thing is, is living with an anxiety disorder and depression means that I've already like at, at the point that everybody else has been getting to the past two weeks. So like, it's not anything new for me. It's, you know, Hey, this has been my life since 13 or so. So I'm not freaking out, especially more than I already was. Um, but I have like, I have a coworker who was, you know, watching the press conferences live in his office and, uh, tracking, there's like the, the global tracking thing where you can test, you can refresh to see what cases are where. And he told me like, Oh, first case in Minnesota. And I'm like, geez, thanks. Thanks. Brandon. Let's go to the big tote board. <laughs> exactly. It's just, ugh. I think we're up to what? 17 cases in Minnesota now. It's still, yeah, it's 
I, I'm already stressed to the point of, of uh, I'm already a hundred percent stressed. Like it, nothing else is going to affect me at this point, but it still isn't great. So it's, I'm not, I, it's one of those things. I shouldn't just say it's one of those things. I'm not trying to minimize it, but at the same time, pandemics occur and there are pretty standard ways to combat them and work, you know, fight them. And even if the playbook isn't really being followed by all parties, some parties it is being followed by, and I don't mean party in the, but anyway, um, I was, there was a joke in there I was going to reach for, but it wasn't worth it. Um, like, <sighs> I'm not overly worried. I wash my hands. I have hand sanitizer on my desk. I work with middle school students. They already know to sanitize their hands constantly. Like I, if I, if I get sick, I'm relatively young and healthy. I just went to the dentist. They said my teeth look great. So that's another plus. Um, You got that going for you. Yeah, exactly. I'll leave a beautiful corpse. So it's, (laughs) it's not a thing that is currently occupying a hundred percent of my brain. And it's more just like, seeing oh look at the terrible things that happened as a result of capitalism and a virus you know so it's it's like the virus alone you know that's one thing capitalism profiting off the virus and trying to figure out how to react to it without minimizing its profit margins and as a result ruining the lives of billions in fact hey that's a whole other thing I, how political are we're, we're getting pretty political on this right like i can i can go pretty pretty lefty on this nuts oh, right oh 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 yeah this this, <laughs> this is the home for both comics and politics absolutely oh, good oh good i don't get enough of those in my life <laughs> that's only 90 percent of my conversations thanks i, um, I know right <laughs> but yeah and it's also i mean I mean, fuck, we don't have sports to talk about, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, every all sports are canceled now, guys. You know, now you too get to sit inside your house playing video games all the time, and I'm like, hey, I've been practicing this every weekend of my goddamn adult life. You know? <laughs> yeah, I just saw that uh, that EA canceled an esports competition. I'm like, God yeah, now damn they're really, Yeah, that's a really bad sign. Although, is it es- Was it like an in-person fighting tournament thing? Because those, obviously, you're going to, like... You want to talk about places of dubious hygiene and like lots of people in close <laughs> contact, like fighting game tournaments. You might as well just dunk the whole building in Lysol. <laughs> but yeah, so th- that stuff is it's yeah. It, it my point being, I personally about myself and my family, I'm not horribly worried. My brother-in-law is a germaphobe, and he already carried little hand sanitizer bottles around everywhere, and he has two very small children, so he, I'm sure, is like vibrating at such speeds he could pass through walls like the flash a little comics thing too there um but like you know i personally am just like well we're already gonna die in 20 years baby like i bring it on (laughs) um but yeah so it's it's been interesting interesting couple of weeks (laughs) because Yeah. yeah everybody else is freaking about about this as much as i have been about everything since 1994 you know it's it's been a trip so uh is your is your school still under normal operations it is and that's actually been a bit of contentious debate as you might imagine my pal brandon has has talked about the fact that really they should be canceling all classes and there is an argument against that of course because you know a lot of these it's a it's a very it's a school that has a very underserved population what's called a highly mobile population that is often kids living in shelters and things like that and this is often the most structured time they have and it's their only source of food and you know interaction so like there's a value to it existing but in this particular case there are other services because Minnesota actually has a pretty decent net so to speak for social services 
and it's really just endangering the kids more by exposing them to germs. So, yeah, we haven't been canceled yet. I get several emails every other day now about like, well, we're not canceling school yet because DHS says that's not the right call yet. And I'm like, great. Um, <laughs> but I, at this point, I'm kind of I'm kind of expecting it to happen. Um, it, it might as well. I mean, we got spring break in a couple of weeks. I'm kind of wondering if they're almost putting it off so they can just take one week off and the other week is just spring break, which would I don't know. But anyway, no, they haven't canceled it yet. Everything else around Minnesota is getting slowly canceled. My mother, um, my mother is the head of a friends organization for the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, and there was going to be this very big event uh, of a youth chamber orchestra competition where uh, chamber groups from all over the state were going to come in, and there was going to be this big competition in person in a concert hall, and they had judges flying in, and it was this weekend. It was in fact going to be tomorrow, as of us recording this, and. She was, and she'd been working on this since last October, and the debate came down to, well, should we cancel this? And so basically all of her hard work has gone down the tube. So that's been <laughs> that's, that's been the more immediate concern is my mother tearing her hair out over that. But uh, yeah, ultimately that's been that's been canceled, and you know it, it fucking sucks. But it uh, yeah, so it's things haven't completely collapsed yet, but. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and and we watched this play out last week in kind of small scale with ECCC, um, yes. and it's it, you feel for everybody in this, right? Because we're all just to some measure of another kind of scared shitless right now. To, you know, yeah. to some measure or another, because it's so there's so much uncertainty upon uncertainty, um, and the event planners they're like you know they're they're fucked either way because oh, yeah. yeah they can't like. They can't like put a smile on their face and just try to push forward f- with it, or because they they look like ghouls if they don't. Uh, yeah. The fans and and the people who are looking forward to attend this, you know, they they wanted to attend. Like nobody wants to like, oh, you know, I, I was all set to go to that conference or or that convention or or WrestleMania, but nah, fuck it, nah, I got you know, yeah. I don't want to uh, anymore. I could, I could give up four or five months of income. Yeah, no, it's. No, it's really unfortunate because then, yeah, at the same time, yeah, there really is a significant health risk of having a bunch of sweaty nerds in a in a Petri dish for a weekend. And like, yeah, that probably would have been a bad thing. But yes, obviously, it's really terrible that a lot of people are losing this huge chunk of income they could otherwise count on. And it's 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 awful. It's really awful. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's always this is the thing that comes across in movies like Contagion, which everybody and their mother is watching right now because, you know, of course they are. And it's a good movie, too. Frankly, I kind of like it. But like it's not the disease itself that is scary. It is its effects upon society at large. It is the ripple effect of how people react to it and how systems absorb the shock or don't or prepare for it or don't or are, you know, able to contain it or aren't like that's the real problem with any sort of large scale disaster i mean you know disaster movies in general like this volcano or uh what was the other volcano movie there's two volcano movies at the same time right there was the uh, there was the one with uh, tommy lee jones and ann hayes and i think that was volcano yeah. right dante's peak dante's peak that was there that you was go the pierce brosnan linda hamilton anyway yeah um <laughs> movie talk as well you know you're gonna get that on this on this podcast um but yeah i mean any any narrative about a a large-scale you know, disasters like that pandemics obviously are slightly different because it's an ongoing long-term thing. It's something that, you know, plays out over the course of months or years, even, uh, as opposed to, you know, two days or whatever. Uh, it strains every system. It really 
disproportionately impacts the working poor. It, it disproportionately impacts the people who are already disadvantaged or sick or elderly or the most vulnerable parts of society, essentially. So, yeah, pandemics have a have a special have a special role in our in our disaster. I was about to say disaster fantasies, but that's obviously not the right word. Disaster narratives, uh, whatever. Um, yeah, and you know it's what what sucks in Contagion, which incidentally one of the other bits I love. Contagion, of course, starts the 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 thing starts in Minnesota. <laughs> it starts like in Minneapolis is where the outbreak happens because Gwyneth Paltrow or Gwyneth Paltrow or Lisa Kudrow, Gwyneth Paltrow, flies yes. back. Yes, flies back from China and suddenly falls over dead in her kitchen and everything, and that's like in a suburb of Minneapolis. <laughs> so that was a, that was an extra spicy little fun bit watching that movie again. It's like, yeah, yeah, and and I'm I'm pretty sure that was before Goop, but we all kind of already hated her. <laughs> God, I need to go back and watch it so I can like feel extra glad when she dies in like the but, first twenty minutes. But think about it: if only we'd had Goop at the time, she could have been saved. If only she'd had those jade eggs to stick in her vagina. Oh. I'm sorry, that was that was a bridge too far. Pretend it, let's roll back that joke by 10 seconds. God damn it, this is a clean podcast. It really, ah, uh, I've ruined a, everything. A family <laughs> affair. Um, yeah. All right, all right. One, one more general, like, coronavirus question, and then we'll, then we'll move on to, to talk about your book. Um, so in terms of, of, of prepping, of, of stockpiling slash hoarding, it's me personally, I'm I'm set on bourbon. I got I have I, I got a good collection here, so I'm I'm solid there. But basically, I've been acquiring like Dinty Moore, like beef stew, meals ready to eat stuff, and uh, and Cliff bars. Um, are oh, you stocking up on anything? No more than usual, but I already kind of stocked up. With, so here's part of the thing is also I live with my parents because I'm 35 and this is America, um, and I. It, you know, it is what it is. Um, and we already did the thing where we cook large amounts of everything and freeze everything. Cause that's also what my, that's what my dad is like, is you cook a billion pounds of everything and stick it in the freezer. So we have you, you hardy Midwesterners. Well, I was hardy Midwesterners. He said, we got red beans and rice. We got, you know, turkey burgers. We got pasta sauce. We got all this stuff. And you know, we shop at Costco. We have a billion toilet paper rolls. We have, uh, you know, I have lactose digestion pills out coming out the wazoo. I have everything I need. So, no, that's another thing that I'm not terribly worried about. But again, I'm in a privileged, pretty, I'm in a pretty privileged position. You know, I'm, I'm, if not middle class, I get to at least enjoy the illusion that I am, and I get to have enough of whatever I need, more or less, without having to hoard all this stuff and worry about it. So, um, no, I do need to stock up more on Mountain Dew because if you can't tell, ah. I caffeinate myself constantly. Well, this is so. This is my thing. My vice is I haven't, um, I cannot drink coffee or tea. Or alcohol. It all just tastes like turpentine to me. It just, I really, I cannot do it, which is, which is bad because I need to get my caffeine somehow and I need to calm down about things somehow. So for the, for the caffeine, I have to go to soda and for calming down, I just basically have video games and that's about it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, 
but I do have a, a fair amount of Mountain Dew stocked up. I should replenish my stocks at some point. The good thing about that is, of course, those are also non-perishable because they're made out of you know chemical tailings. So I don't have to worry <laughs> about that stuff expiring for 20 years. Um, also, I made the joke about caffeine, but the other thing that's affecting my 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 talk right now is I literally just finished watching the third John Mulaney special, which I'd never seen before except in extended GIF format. We were talking about this so earlier where it's like, oh, it's like a much longer gif with sound like god what a novelty um so i'm doing like unconsciously i'm doing the i'm doing john mulaney vocalizations like if you hear me talk in any other situation i don't have quite as much of the the timing and the affect and the 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 tones that a john mulaney that that john mulaney has this is this is me at my most sort of comedy comedian-esque comedian comedian-esque i don't know anyway um I just don't want to trick people when they come up to see me at a con and they're like, you're not as funny as you were. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what you were expecting, but hell, this is normal for me. Whenever we go back to having cons again. Oh, God, yeah, that's yeah. They, I, the the local Minneapolis conventions have not been canceled as, you know, as, as I'm sure you and everybody else listening to this has had. You've had uh, a million emails in your inbox saying. Well, you know, we here at Tire Zone are very concerned about this, and we're watching, you know, the the situation. We'll let you know about any differences and blah 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 blah. And you know, same deal. All the Minneapolis conventions have been like, well, you know, we're not making any any changes yet. We'll let you know. There's a con. There's Spring Con is in May something or other. I forget the exact timing. And then uh, Autoptic Festival, which is really great because that has been on for a couple of years, is as far as I know happening which that's like in August or September and God, I hope so because I really love autoptic. It's one of the really good, you know, local conventions, Minneapolis, by the way, to anyone listening and doesn't know this, Minneapolis is a pretty decent slate of cartoonists. You know, we have a lot of good creators around here and I'm, uh, I'm proud to be a part of it. So, um, but yeah, as far as I know, uh, Minneapolis cons probably still happening. It depends on how much we, you know, flatten that Question curve. Mark? Question mark, question mark, question mark, exclamation point. I don't know. Yeah, it's as far as anyone can tell, probably maybe it's going to happen, which I hope so, because God knows I love the conventions around here. Like I say, they are really good. I really I enjoy being able to, you know, ch check in with other creators, and things like that. So but until then, we at least have podcasts which help us, you know, soothe some of the the I don't know, need for human interaction or whatever it sounds like anyway. Um, <laughs> one more, one last question um, before we, oh, no, hey, we again hey. get to the book. Um, are you friends with uh, Elliot Rahal? Yes. Yeah, that was I was wondering about this. I was I've been listening to some of the previous episodes and I'm like, oh, Rahal. Excellent. He yes, he's another local creator. We're both. So there's a there is a studio in town that's primarily for artists because it's a studio um, world monster headquarters, which is headed up by Xander Cannon, the guy who does uh, Kaiju Max for Oni Press and a, a billion other things. Um, and a whole lot of people are, are affiliated with it to one degree or another. It is a physical studio space. Like there is a studio in Northeast Minneapolis, but it's also just like, if you know any of these people, you're on the mailing list. And Elliot Rahal and I are both part of the World Monster Headquarters extended family, question mark. Um, and yeah, I mean, Elliot helped me, you know, talk to the guys at Aftershock. That was partly how I got introduced to Aftershock. And actually, the other part of how I got introduced to Aftershock was from another Minneapolis cartoon comics person, Katie Rex. So, you know, it's all it's all very much a network. But yeah, Elliot, 
um, helped me get into them. He also uh, has helped me talk to some other publishers and people that might, you know, I might have things with maybe question mark, question mark again. Uh, <laughs> super secret. It's super secret. But yeah, Elian and I definitely have a lot of, I mean, we're, we're very much on the same wavelength with how we love to kind of, we love to play with genre. We love to do weird shit. Um, yeah, no, Elliot's great. Um, he's a, he's a good, he's a good guy. Yeah, he is. He has good people. Um, and I will, I will never forget how on my very first episode of this podcast, I did not know how to pronounce his name. <laughs> I wasn't uh, going to so here's here's the other thing i haven't finished listening to that first episode of the podcast but i noticed i'm like really rahal i wasn't you know it it's a thing if you never hear it spoken you're not sure you know exactly look 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 (laughs) sir i no. (laughs) this this is the goddamnedest hardest part of comics journalism because we all work on the goddamn computer and we never actually talk to people. And so the, then we, you know, we fuck up and say something wrong. And then like either nobody corrects us or, you know, we get corrected in like a very nice, polite way. And we're like, God damn it. I've been saying that wrong all this time. Jesus. So just cut, cut me some slack. It's real hard. It sucks. It's uh, you just got to you just got to be prepared to make a couple of mistakes along the way. And like, oh. Sorry, I assumed it was other pronouns or, oh, I didn't realize you actually worked for this publisher as opposed to just doing fan art or whatever. <laughs> I had one where it was a person who had done a who was a storyboard artist for Avatar The Last Airbender who had done a comic that was a not official, but like the creators had looked at it and been like, yeah, that's good. And like, you know, it wasn't official, but it was sort of close and like. I didn't realize that she was so closely tied to it. So I'm like, Oh, that's a cool comic. It's like, yeah. Like, Oh, you're a storyboarder. Oh shit. <laughs> I feel like a dope. <laughs> and I would, I would mention his name if I could remember it. Now I feel like even more of a dope. Cause I just told the story. I don't remember who the fuck they are. Uh, oh boy. Anyway, awkward. Anyway. Um, anyway. Uh, sorry. So orphan no. age. Let's. <laughs> yeah. Your book. Yeah, my book, Orphanage. Thank you so much for wanting to talk about this, by the way. I, it's, it's been a little, uh, I don't want to say it's been difficult getting people to talk about it because it hasn't. Because one of the things I like about comics journalism is that people genuinely look at everything. But it is, it, 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 there hasn't been as much since the book, well, finished for now. I'm going to, I want to bring that up sidebar, table that for later. Um, Since the book finished for now, (laughs) there hasn't been as much talk about it. I mean, and that's always the way that it is in comics in general. You know, it's the same reason that, twice as many people buy issue one as will buy issue two and twice as many people buy issue two as will buy issue three. You know, it's the same thing. Um, it's harder to get people to talk about a completed or semi-completed project than it is to talk about something that's new. So, um, but yeah, no, thank you very much. Cause it is, it's a project. I'm, I mean, I'm very proud of it. Obviously it's been something I've been working on for years. Uh, and I, I was so happy to get it looking in the form it is. And yeah, where do you want to start? <laughs> uh, well, well, let's, let's, Let's start first with what interests you in sort of post-apocalyptic uh, apocalyptic fiction generally. Like, what what's a what makes that a fun genre to kind of explore? I mean, for this project, so I should say, a post-apocalyptic fiction is not something that recently interests me as much as other genres do, and that's purely because of the fact that we already, I already feel like I'm living through a post-apocalyptic thing right now. It's like, oh, this is going to stop being fiction in a little while. Um, 
but with this project, what what interested me and what what kind of drew me in the first place was thinking about systems in general, thinking about like how systems absorb a particular kind of shock, how systems uh, interrelate, how systems can be built or rebuilt or change under stress, um, how much we think we know about how the world works and how much we really don't, <laughs> and just how systems perpetuate themselves. Um, and that was what did it for me with this project was that it isn't so much about the apocalypse. It's never really about the apocalypse. Like, no, that's actually not fair. It is often sometimes about the apocalypse. Often, sometimes. Eh. Um, it is quite often about the apocalypse because you want to have people see your giant alien spaceship or your horrible zombie virus or whatever. But the best ones, I think, are – or there at least there's a slightly different th take to take on post-apocalyptic, which is, okay, you know, taking all that in stride, what does it de then look like? What is a world with, say, zombies – and have had zombies for years look like, you know, what does a world that had an alien invasion, you know, a generation ago look like? Um, because that's always what interests me is it's, it's not so much about, you know, what this crazy disruption is. It's how do you learn to live with the disruption? Um, a show that I watched for, like I watched the first couple seasons of, and I didn't stick with it, but I, I kind of should. It was really good. It was called Colony, which was basically Earth got invaded by aliens, but the aliens are just kind of letting us live in our own little protected, you know, sectors, and we don't get a lot of electricity and a lot of food or a lot of medicine, but they kind of just let us live, so long as we have this all-powerful alien monitor overlord looking over us, and you know, the government curtails everything, and there's a resistance movement, and how do people, you know, organize themselves in this environment? Um, and that's what I found most interesting was it's like it's a life during wartime thing with a slight science fiction edge to it that was really appealing. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of another good example. Well, so uh, even The Walking Dead, obviously the the biggest modern post-apocalyptic. Uh, work of fiction uh i stuck with the comic for a while i only i only watched like the first season of the show and it just didn't quite get me as much i stuck with the comic for a while and like the moment that really solidified what i liked about it was when they find their first semi-permanent shelter which is well defended and has room for growing crops and has you know good sight lines and places to sleep and places that can do laundry and it's a prison and like that's what a what a perfect little metaphor for that whole world is is to is to have the only safe place be a place of detention and horror in this newly changed world. So something about something about the the way in which we adapt to circumstances that we wouldn't think we would have to or that we weren't th wouldn't think would be possible. You know, we never thought we'd have to live with zombies or an alien invasion or whatever. But if we do, what does that look like? How do we adapt to that? What do we you know, what in our daily lives changes, what in the larger systems change? And so with Orphanage, that was the same big question. I mean, going back to its genesis, this is one of those stories where I know ex almost exactly where it came from. Um, I was in my second year of college in the shower one morning, and I had been reading Why the Last Man. And I was like, wow, this comic's really good. I like this. I want to do something vaguely similar. Well, what other sort of large group genocides could I do that would lead to an interesting story? Uh, well, what if all the women died? Uh, that's kind of obvious. Uh, what if all the uh, children died? Uh, uh, I actually don't know if Children of Men had come out, but either way, I was like, no, that doesn't work. There was a Neil Gaiman short story about that, too, that I was like, nah, I don't want to do that. But I'm like, what if all the adults died? I was like, oh, that, that's, that's interesting. I bet nobody's ever done that before. And then, you know, two months of research later, I'm like, oh, fucking everybody's done this story. <laughs> There's been a surprising number of stories about, like, a world where all the adults died and even more specifically, there's been a story or two where it's like not only have all the adults died, but now it's 
a significant chunk of years later, and here's what the world looks like having changed. So, like, even that's not that original. <laughs> but it's still so, an idea. South Park did do it. Oh, God. See, I didn't see that one. I didn't see <laughs> – well, they, you mean like the Stick of Truth game? Because that's the that's the most recent South Park media I've interacted with. <laughs> no, no, they one of their earliest episodes, uh, well, not one of the earliest episodes, but an earlier episode. Um, all the kids learn to uh, basically achu- accuse their parents of molestation, and all the parents get put in jail, and uh, then uh, and then the kids are left to uh, to run the town, and like some outsiders like come in, like you know two days later and they're like, Oh my God, what is this weird society we have found? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Lord of the flies, I guess is probably one of the biggest examples, although it's not even really science. It's sort of science fiction. It's the science fiction. part of it isn't really a science fiction thing at all. Um, But yeah, Lord of the flies is one of the big ones, but to be honest, I mean, Lord of the Flies. So obviously, so I'm, I'm a librarian. I'm a, I'm an educator. I did my research before I did this because I wanted to know what, what had been done before and how I could avoid it if I had to, or like what I might be able to do that would be an interesting new twist. Um, and a couple things have been done before, obviously. Um, the, the Lord of the Flies is obviously a big influence. Well, not an influence. It was, it was one that was like widely copied, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. Cause Lord of the Flies is, it's very cynical. And it's almost designed to be cynical because one of the things about Lord of the Flies is it was a book that was written in direct response to a different book. Um, There's a book called The Coral Gardens or Coral Garden. I forget. Some earlier piece of British literature where it's it's very like 1920s Edwardian. What ho, lads, you know, spirit of adventure, boys own magazines where it's three kids in a you know, deserted island who, you know, figure out how to live for themselves. And then they fend off a crew of smugglers and shit like that. And it's, and he basically wrote a book where it's like, no, here's what happens if you have a whole bunch of kids on an island with no supervision, they go crazy and form cults and murder each other. And even I think that's a little, and I think he went to, he was trying to make a point, obviously golden was, but that's too much in the other direction for me. Cause for me, it's not, what's interesting is not like, see how quickly into barbarism mankind slips, but like, what do kids think? how do kids think the world works? Like that was the question that sort of guided me in the, in the early planning stages of the, of orphanage was thinking not like, not if you give a kid power, how do they use it? But how do they think it works? Like, how do they think it, it mean, what do they think it means being a, you know, a leader, a president? What do they think it means being a doctor? How do they think it means being, you know, in charge of something and what kind of world will they build getting, you know, having that, level of knowledge. And that was what was really interesting to me. So getting into it, I mean, I was thinking from very early on, I I realized I wanted to do something where it was later after this, after this horrible catastrophe. And also there's another thing I want to bring up. (laughs) You'll notice I never detailed the catastrophe at all. And spoiler alert, there's really no plans to it because that's not what this story is. This is not a story about, like I said, the apocalypse. Um, The apocalypse is essentially meaningless. Um, (laughs) I, that's a that's a big spoiler, but you know it's it's also like people should know what they're getting into when they read this book. If you want to know why this happened, this is not the, this series is not going to satisfy that particular curiosity. Um, there is <laughs> it, it it's an act of God. It's you know it's Anubis sneezes and all the adults die. That's what happens. You know what? That's what I thought it was. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I was like, Anubis. Anubis, it's got its fingerprints, its paw prints all over this. I, <laughs> exactly, exactly. 
Oh, perfect. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because it, it doesn't it doesn't ultimately matter. I mean, this I said why the last man before. And like, if you really look for it, yes, why the last man's influence is all over this goddamn series. Um, and part of that was and why there was an explanation why all the men died. It doesn't really matter. Um, you know, it, it there is sort of an exp- a reason for it. And they kind of figure out how to overcome it by the end. But like, that's not what the book is about. And like. You know, that th- that was what interests me. And it's always also more interesting in stories where the people are just like, yeah, this is just how it is. Let's just, you know, uh, what was the great example? Somebody always a friend of mine always likes to talk about, oh, the movie Speed Racer, where they're just like, yeah, this is the world. People build racetracks that are basically 10 times the size of the biggest amusement park and cars have hydraulic jacks and, you know, fucking shoot spikes out the back like they're a Batman car. Like, that's just the world this is. And here's the story that happens in it. And I respect that. I really love it when a story doesn't try to, you know, justify all this nonsense. It's like, no, just this is a story in which people drive insane crazy jet engine cars like that's that's what it is so yeah this is a world in which all the adults have died and if you're worried about why i don't know read a fucking textbook um <laughs> make, make yeah. your own ca- head cannon baby <laughs> yeah uh you know you, you make a great point exposition especially in, in a book like this can just really like grind it down to a halt um yes. I, I remember reading a a comic in the same genre i'm not gonna I'm, you know, I'm not going to say which one because we're we're trying to be nice here. We're trying to be nice here. Um, and there was there were like four or five panels in a row where it was like specifically like I'm going to explain to you how this system works. I'm going to detail how this world works. Like we're gonna we're gonna take a time out from all of the interesting shit that's happening, and I'm just gonna break it down for you. And I'm like. A good editor would have told you, no, you don't you don't need to you don't need to say this. You need to maybe show it. Sure, maybe if it's vital, but you're just slowing everything down. Like get to the bullets already. Yeah, it's the the point of the story is to get to the story. It's not to deliver us, you know, 10 fucking hours of like expo- of technological exposition to show us how much research you've done. Like I also love pointing to Mass Effect as a game. Well, Mass Effect obviously has its flaws, but as a game like I love that they're just like, yeah, there's this thing called the Mass Effect and it means you can do video game shit. It <laughs> means you've got, you know, powers you can lift people up and throw them into ceilings and, you know, fucking uh blow shit up from a distance. You got mind powers and you got laser armors and it's the future and you have sex with aliens. And I'm like, great. And then there's like, okay, there's also a billion pages about how exactly the mass effect works in our little in universe guidebook thing. But you don't have to care about that if you don't want to. And I'm like, also great. Not gonna. <laughs> yeah. I just want to shoot space shoot. I was going to say shoot space babes and have sex with, I don't know what I was going to say, but I, both things really happen in those games. So, um, but, <laughs> oh, Mass Effect shooting space babes since the 2005 or whatever the fuck it was. Wait, when was it? 2007? Oh, yeah, you got me, bud. It's not oh. one of my games. Oh, it was, it, it's got its flaws as a game, but it's, it's got its fun too. Anyway, but like Mass Effect has this insanely detailed work behind the scenes of like, oh, well, there's this very specific, you know, particle that when exposed to an electric charge of the such and such will do this to mass and then such and such will happen and because of that you can get faster than light travel but it's also just like dude it's space lasers that's all you really need to know to play mass effect and you're going to get the same amount of enjoyment out of it so you know it's it, like yes all this is, is a very elongated way of saying yes i agree with you there's <laughs> there's only so much that you need to know to really enjoy how a how a 
a story works or how a game works. Um, the other example I always think of, whenever I think of like a really good example of Technobabble, this is the movie The Mummy, because there's that one bit where Benny, the cowardly dude who, you know, steals the camels and he's clearly just a shit heel. Uh, he uh, he's seeing the mummy for the first time and he's terrified. And so he's pulling out all these religious symbols out on a, out of the necklace and he's chanting prayers in different languages, trying to find something that'll hold the mummy off. And finally he gets to a, a, a star of David and he starts saying something in Hebrew and the mummy stops and he's like, Oh, you speak the language of the slaves. How would you like to work for me instead? And that makes no goddamn sense for a bunch of different <laughs> historical reasons, but as a narrative like utility like that's perfect that's all you need because all you need is to have it be like yes but benny the cowardly asshole starts working for uh the mummy and this is how and like, yes that's that's a hundred percent of what i need and you accomplished it in like 30 seconds with a good character-based joke on top of it that was perfect that's great techno it's not even techno babble it's just like hey here's a funny joke about how the mummy talks to benny like it's great anyway um Again, uh, way off track. My point is, yeah, in Orphan Age, it was more about coming up with a situation where, like, yes, in this world, the adults all died and the children were left alive somehow. And they've had to rebuild the world as best they can. And what does that look like? You know, from what they know of how adults act, what do they think, you know, how do they think the world works? And what survives? Um, and one of the things... I didn't I didn't get a chance to go quite deep enough into this because we've only done the first five issues. And I, I also mentioned I mentioned earlier that I, I don't feel like I'm done with this yet. And we can we can keep talking about that, too. Um, I didn't quite get into the history of what has survived and what hasn't and how things have gotten into conflict um, just because we didn't have the space. But I did want to talk a little bit about, like, you know, what what causes some groups to survive and others to die and what has helped this group to survive as opposed to others. Because of course, uh, evolutionary theory, just because something is good, doesn't mean it's going to survive. It's whether it helps you adapt to a particular situation. So the fact that the main sort of villainous faction that we've seen so far in orphan age is this fanatic religious cult. That's because there's something in the nature of that sort of organization that helps it survive in a, really terrible situation. And that's not meant to be an indictment of religion. And one of the things I also regret about only having done these five issues is that I seem to be really down on religion, which I'm not. Um, I am an atheist, but I'm not like one of those atheists who are like, oh, you believe in a man in the sky? You're but you're such a dumbass. Like, oh, flying spaghetti monster. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's dumb. I, I, those people annoy the hell out of me. I have a lot of oh, religious they, friends. They annoy the hell out of everybody. Yeah, it's the, even other atheists. Come on, people. You're making us look bad. Tolerance of ideas, all that crap. So, yeah, like, I, I wanted to be able to except, show. Except Mike Pence. Fuck Mike Pence. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that, but that's the thing. Fuck Mike Pence for other reasons. Like, fuck all these religious assholes who use religion as a way to just an extended form of tribalism. And that's yeah. something that the religion in this, the religion we've seen so far in Orphan Age does very well is tribalism and tribes survive in this environment because it's a very horrible environment where not everybody survives and very few people have the chance to build anything and like of course tribes survive because that's you know you you build you grow you you conquer you take what you need and i wanted to and i do have stories in mind for the future where religion is not a purely destructive fanatical force because that's not the only side that religion has but what we've seen so far is that and that's the unfortunate truth of this situation is that one of the most successful groups that survived in Orphan Age is a fanatic religious cult, essentially. Um, but it's because, I mean, and this is what it, this goes back to what I was saying about systems. Like, 
it's because certain systems have an advantage or a disadvantage in different situations. Um, different systems react better or worse to different crises. They, they, they can, they can survive better. They can, they can absorb shocks better. Uh, talking about virus stuff right now. Hey, uh, there's, there's things that a democracy can do better in, 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 in responding to, uh, illnesses like this. Uh, I mean, this is a little more political than I don't feel like I have the total background to talk about this, but like <clears throat> a well-organized system has the ability to absorb a shock like that and make things work. And like, that's what a system is there for. That's what an organization is there for is to help you survive something unexpected. Uh, and yeah, so that's what orphanage is about for me is it's looking at what are these systems that, you know, how do systems work? What have, what do the systems that these kids have built do for them? You know, what survives in an environment like this? I've been rambling. So, I'm really caffeinated. Oh no, yeah. <laughs> I, I can totally tell. And, uh, that, and, and that's fine because, um, I, I worked through my bourbon, so I'm kind of a little down. Um, nice. and so, you know, it's, it's good to have some energy here. Um, <laughs> You talked about uh, coming up with this original idea while you're in college, and I imagine it's been it's been percolating for a while. Um, how did it get over to aftershock, and, and how did it change maybe along the way? Oh, it changed quite a bit. I mean, when it changed, it was much more of a sort of a road trippy type thing. It was very much along the lines of. I just don't have a good comparison for it. It had more, it had more sort of adventures along the way, which was, you know, had a lot of side stories and kind of like, Oh, look at this wacky town. We just came across and Oh, what's this new place with its weird secret. Um, and those, those stories have their place, but it just didn't, uh, the older I got, the less it spoke to me. I mean, this is a series I came up with in college, but it's also one I've for years, you know, I, I did years ago and then I didn't think about for many more years. And then I came back to him like, oh, yeah, I could probably bring this out of mothballs. But my feelings have very much changed about how do I feel about this situation? Um, and a lot of subplots have changed and the entire ending of it changed because I had a totally different thing in mind that no longer seems as relevant to the themes I was getting to or the, the ideas I was working with. Um <clears throat> But a lot of it didn't change. I mean, that's the other thing. Every one of those issues ends with a really pretentious ass quote because that's the kind of purpose I am, the person I am. Um, and it took me years to gather all those pretentious ass quotes, man. Like I, I've been spending a lot of time getting those um, <laughs> because that's the kind of person I read. I, I read Watchmen when I was in high school, and I'm like, this is the pinnacle of literature. Ah. Uh, <laughs> I still, I, I should say, I do still like Watchmen, but like, anyway, um, it's. The reason that I brought it to Aftershock, though, was because, I mean, I, I really did have – I wanted to show them something that I knew hit what they were looking for because Aftershock likes – I mean, Aftershock likes high concept. It likes things that punch hard. It likes, it likes stories that are interesting and innovative from the jump and give you a new world to explore. And I was like, I can come up with a couple of those. And one of those was Orphan Age and one of those was Moth and Whisper, which is the other book that I did for them so far. Um and that was another one that had that actually hadn't been in the hopper for as long, but it was one where I had kind of gone back and forth on what I liked about it and what I wanted to focus on. But yeah, with Orphanage, it was just this is a this is a premise that has a whole lot of potential and it's interesting from the beginning because as soon as you hear it, you're like, oh yeah, what is that situation going to look like? What is your take on this world going to be? Um and that's you know, that's something that they were looking for. And I just I remember telling it to to uh God, it was Mike and 
Oh, who was the other guy? Oh, fuck. <laughs> uh, Mikey, the other guy. Shit, I am blanking on the name of Aftershock's literally other person. I am. I feel like the worst person. Um, over uh, over breakfast at a at a place in in New York City after New York Comic Con, and uh, <laughs> and that was my. Uh, and that that was my pitch was for Orphan Asian Moth and Whisper, and they ended up taking both of them, although there was a, a time between them. Um, and yeah, I think it just you know what what they liked about it too was the same things that I like, which is that it it gives you a, an an interesting world from the jump. It it opens up questions, uh, and it also I mean let's not forget there's there's an entertainment aspect to it too. There's there's guns being fired. There's ethical questions. There's you know drama. There's action. Um, and there's a lot of cool visuals along the way, which I also especially want to shout out for because uh, they were the ones, Aftershock were the ones who hooked me up with Nuno Plati, who is brilliantly beautiful on those pages. Like his art was, oh man, his art was a revelation on that thing. <laughs> it was, I was so incredibly happy when I started getting pages back from him. They just looked amazing. Um, but yeah, that, uh, that's how that came together through a lot of tangents. <laughs> Now this is this is how I read it, and <laughs> you're you're the guy who wrote it, so you can feel free to disagree with me, oh, sure. uh, even though even though it's my podcast. Um, <laughs> I thought a real strength of the series was that each issue was kind of a self-contained story. Like I didn't necessarily need to have, you know, if I wanted to come in at say issue three, I didn't have to necessarily have one and two like kind of in my back pocket. Like I thought you did a really great job of telling a tight story within each one of those issues. Was, was that your plan going into it or did I just read it wrong? Very which is, much so. Which no, is, you know, that's a, it's a, it's a possibility. <laughs> we'll agree to disagree. No, it, it, that was absolutely an intention from the start. It was, um, I knew that I wanted to, I mean, I kind of I kind of made a joking comment about the quotes earlier, but that is genuinely a thing that I had in mind was like, I want to I want each of these stories to show some aspect of, you know, a reaction to this world, whatever that whatever that means. You know, how do you know a, a new town that has some weird secret, a, a person who's been affected by living in this world, uh, just how people have organized themselves. I wanted to show an aspect of everything <clears throat> as the series went on. And it just made the most sense if I was also thinking of this as a as like a road trip story, which it kind of is um you know where's what's the latest wacky town i mean wacky town isn't quite what i meant but like what's the latest place that we go into a lot of the a lot of the inspiration for it actually also came from an anime that i was watching at the time samurai champloo which is uh it's by the same group as shinichiro watanabe and a lot of the same production that did cowboy bebop um and it's very much it follows into the tradition of like samurai road trip wandering you know, adventure type stories. Um, and in that, in that series too, there was a larger goal, but in most cases, every episode was a, was a standalone thing. Um, that series, the, assuming I get to keep going with this series, like that, the influences on that will also show up eventually. Um, but yeah, like I knew from the start that I was like, every issue has to more or less kind of hit its, hit its beats and then go. And I just wanted to know, like, you know, what's the, what's the point of this issue? What can I, what can I do? And what can I tell? And that's how that helped me determine those quotes, which again, I joked about, but it's not really a joke. Like <laughs> I, I, I was trying to find lines that I thought made a point and made it interestingly and said something about, you know, where we were, uh, what, what the uh, meaning of this issue was. And that's, 
that's that was all that's all structural stuff that's all from the start it was like oh yeah what can i do about that um yeah <laughs> i did i mean and and like i said i mentioned structure i do have I, I do have plans for this series to go forward. It depends a lot on the reception to it. It depends a lot on the market. It depends a lot on if anything else happens with the series or anything else. I know I'm being very vague, but I have to be because that's how the business is. Um, <laughs> it depends a lot on everything. Uh, but uh, this issue, I mean, this story is plotted out to a very specific degree. And I know more or less what happens in every single issue from now until the end. And I got the end planned out every as well. And, you know, it's all, it's all spelled out in my head and on a couple docs in my Google drive. Um, and every issue has its quote set up because of course it fucking does. Uh, <laughs> and I just wanted to make sure that almost like you're knows. a librarian or something, almost, you nerd, almost like I'm a huge nerd. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> I do feel guilty every time I check out a book of poetry from the library, I'm like, Ooh, this is going to make such good quote fodder for some other thing I'm going to write <laughs> a year. Um, I don't just ever sit down and appreciate poetry. I'm just like, ooh, I can quote this shit all day and be like Alan Moore. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I yes, I obviously, I obviously was cared cared about the structure a lot from the start because I wanted to make sure that it, it every issue had its point, every issue had its feel and its theme, and that that went into it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I love stories that do that. I also, I mean, with my other series, Moth and Whisper, I didn't do that as much. It more. That one more felt like, you know, I wanted to hit the three act beats. I want to get from point A to point B and here's a pretty efficient way to do it. Um, but it was, but that's, I mean, that worked for that story because that's what that story is. That's more of a, you know, three act story movie. Hey kids, here's your action, et cetera. Um, and that's just, a, it's a different way of doing things. But with this, yes, it's, I wanted to do the road trip adventure. Here's every issue with its own thing. And yeah, maybe, maybe you missed issue four or maybe you missed issue three actually. And then you don't have to read it to get onto issue four. You do have to read issue four to get onto issue five. Cause those were two parters, but that's just the nature of the beast. Um, anyway, <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I do like, I do like comics that have that issue based stuff, but I also like it when they have a you know a point that they're getting to. I mean, that's always the the best part about those TV shows that have that structure weaved into it. I think that something like, you know, Avatar: The Last Airbender, greatest television show of the last 30, 40, 50 years, and I'm not saying that ironically, baby. Uh, <laughs> that was what they had planned out from the start too. It's like, oh yeah, every episode we know what's happening, and here's what it is. Um, it just it shows a level of craft that I want to aspire to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I know you certainly can't be much more specific on this, but <laughs> what's what's your kind of like optimistic timeline on a second volume or kind of your hopes on a second volume? Like I am I am X percent sure it might happen this time, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. I if I had to get a percentage on it, I, I mean, oof. better than even odds. But <laughs> I mean, that's 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 a that's a I don't even know. I So I can say, I think I, I obviously like working with Aftershock and I'm still working with Aftershock on some other stuff. And that's all going gangbusters. And I obviously they obviously want to do it. I mean, they want to have talented people working for them. They want to have projects that they can do a lot with. They want to have things that will last in the marketplace when it's feasible, then that everything will work, which is, you know, it's always kind of the bugbear of this stuff. Uh so it's it's not a question of them wanting to do it or not wanting to do it. It's more just a question of, you know, 
at this moment doesn't make fiscal sense, doesn't make sense with their other lineup and so forth. And it is, it's something they want to do, but there's got to be, <laughs> things have to work out, obviously. Um, I would say better than even odds. I might just be being optimistic for myself. All told, I mean, this is actually a pretty short series. Assuming I get to do everything the way I want to, it would only be like 20 issues. So you've seen a fourth of the series so far as projected in my, my, you know, Google docs sheet. Um, <laughs> I, I hope there is going to be a volume two, three and four. And then that's really all there is for this particular story. There could be other stories in the world maybe, but like, that's all I have for these characters and their story. By the end of those 20 issues, our three main characters will have had their arcs come to an end, <laughs> which I I'm leaving that vague. I like that for vague, for vague, uh, Anything at the future. <laughs> in, in the last issue, the story will end. And though, yeah, it's, hey, in the last issue, the story will. It's that's perfectly true. Exactly what it is. And it's also, I mean, that's just the nature of this particular story. I mean, Moth and Whisper, frankly, is a story that could keep going forever, pretty much. Some stories are like that. Some stories are like, yeah, this could this could have an issue every month for a hundred years, or this this is a thing that will be done in fifteen or twenty issues. It's just, yeah, that's just the nature of it. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's it, it just very much depends on what I want to do at any given time with any given story. And it's just Aftershock really likes these things. That, Aftershock also really likes arcs that fit in five issues because those that's a nice size for a trade paperback. <laughs> and it's, hey, that makes, makes as much sense as anything else in comics, frankly. It's like, yeah, hey, if it fits in a book and it, there's no huge printing costs, perfect. Wrap it up. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned sort of your three leads. Um. I'm going to do a lazy sports journalism thing here and so, uh, talk about your your three lead characters and kind of how you develop them. So I, I mean, every good story needs a hook. You got to have your you're going to have your someone who's leading leading the charge, as it were, leading the leading the narrative to places where the other characters don't necessarily want to or need to go. Um, and actually, you know, this is this is actually a perfect time to talk about that series. I like Samurai Champloo. That's a series where again it has a thing where there's one character who has a goal. She is looking for somebody and, you know, you know, no, she wants to go there uh, and ends up dragging along two other characters with her. And that was like, perfect. That's a, that's a perfect example of what I want to do with this series is I want to have one character who more or less is driving this car. The other two are not passengers, but they're going along with it for the moment. <clears throat> and that was a structure. I mean, it's a structure that works well for a lot of different types of stories. And for this, it just works because, if you have someone who's always looking ahead, you have someone who is not paying attention to where they are right now. And that's, that's the definition of princess. She's a little bit spoiled is maybe a bit harsh on her, but she's never really had to work very hard for her life because she's sheltered, sheltered. Yes. She's living in a sheltered community. She doesn't have to worry too much about where her next meal comes from or what, you know, how she's going to have to live for the next six months. Um, she, her life is as nice as it can be in the post-apocalyptic ruins of modern society. Um, and then into her life comes two very different people who are competent and and have their own skills uh, and who have their own agendas as well, frankly. I mean, that's another part of it is that they each have – Willa and, and Daniel both have their own plans and their own desires. But for the moment, their plans and desires align with hers well enough and it makes sense to like, hey, we're all escaping town at the same time. We might as well stick together because slightly fewer people, you know, each of us has to kill that way. Um, <laughs> and 
it, you know, from then on, you figure, all right, well, that makes more or less sense. You got three people trying to travel the wilderness. Two of them are experienced enough to know what they're doing. The third is a complete newbie, but she has a goal in mind. It uh, works out nicely. Um, Daniel is Daniel was the first person they came up with after Princess because I, I mean, the gunslinger is such a is such a Western character. And the, the uh, apart from the post apocalypse, the other genre that contributed most of this obviously was the Western. Um, for I mean, obvious reasons. There's horses. There's guns. What else do you need? Uh, <laughs> you know, the 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 gunslinger who clearly has seen too much and you know is trying to live a quiet life or at least not get shot at too many times, but ends up getting dragged back into events. Um, that's not quite a stock character, but it's a character you know very a lot about from the jump. And I, I, I wanted to do that because it's like, yeah, you know, you know what Daniel was like, more or less. He does have surprises, and I, I very clearly wanted to go in there and be like, oh, yes, you don't know everything about him. And there are things that have not even been hinted at in the five issues you've seen that play major roles in his life. But even smaller stuff. I mean, like when they get to Albany in issue four. Uh, and they're there in issue five, and he clearly has a past with the woman who's uh, who's I forget what I made her. She's a, she's a major part of the town. Um, the, uh, she, the the councilwoman. The councilwoman. Thank you. I, I couldn't remember. She wasn't mayor, but I knew she was something. Um, yes, with the, the, the like, he and Lindy clearly have a past, and they have a they have a history. And you know, when they talk about what's happened to them, there's a lot that is going unsaid, and that's again, that's a very much a that's a Western thing. Like that, yes, you. <laughs> your characters always have some sort of grizzled past. Like, oh, I don't want to talk about that now, kid. Um, but that's, and that's what makes them enjoyable is not knowing exactly what's going to happen then, you know, around the next turn or in the next town. Um, and then Willa is sort of the embodiment of that level of it, where she obviously has her own skills and her own past that she's dealing with. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, her her past is even more muddled and her desires are even less visible, but she's knowledgeable about other things that Daniel isn't. And she has different reactions to the world around her. I mean, she's the, you know, in issue four, she's the or, uh, issue three. She's the first person to argue that, no, we should kill this person, this uh, feral child who doesn't know how the world works and is basically an animal because she's seen it and she knows what's, you know, what's necessary to happen in this situation. Uh, and. Did I get that wrong? I just realized I haven't actually read through these comics in a while. And I'm like, shit, wait, did I make Daniel the voice of reason in that situation? <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. You, you are right um, I had, about your okay. book. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I had this really bad moment of like, oh, God, I'm going to be out of this a fraud. <laughs> I can't even remember my own goddamn stories. Uh, um, th that that was Willa who was like, no, you, you need yeah. to you need to basically put him down. And, yeah. and, and this is this is a good time for me to uh, chime in because I, I will say that I thought that story was so tight and so compelling and not something maybe you necessarily see explored in kind of the genre. I thought the idea of, um, you know, a feral, you know, man child in this world was really, really interesting. And I thought you told a great story in issue three and it was probably, um, Probably my favorite. I mean, not not to say that I didn't like the ending or or anything else or or issue two was great too, but like just that that story was just so fresh and different and compelling. And you had the whole idea of this sheltered child princess basically being exposed to the real ugliness of this world. And I thought it was great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. I from a from a craft standpoint, that is the issue I'm most proud of because 
it, because it's so unconnected to anything else, I could do, I could just focus on the pure narrative of that story. And I was able to just really dig in on here's what happens beat by beat. I don't have to worry about ongoing storylines. I don't have to worry about, Oh, you know, Oh, what's going to happen at all. But it's like, no, just fucking here now. Um, and yeah, I mean, the feral child stuff was just, that's, this is, again, this is all the result of research. You, I have read so many books on, you know, abandoned children or war orphans or child soldiers or, you know, books about decay and the apocalypse and all this other shit, just to get all this stuff in my head. And the feral child thing was something I knew I wanted to do from day one was a standalone story where it's like, Hey, here's what happens to feral children. It's not cute. <laughs> it's not Mowgli in the jungle book. Um, <laughs> and it's also, I mean, yeah, that's something that's more appropriate maybe for a zombie book, but it also, you know, Western sitting, it, it fits there as well. And it, it hits, it hits a lot of the, the, the horror of the aspect, which I think is a, I didn't get as much into the horror stuff of it, but there's a there's an undercurrent of horror to this project that I, I I thought was important to really bring across. It's like, no, this is a world in which literally everybody alive has seen their parents and every adult they love die in front of them, and they're now horribly traumatized by that. And here's how we do it. Um, and and yeah, that was that that story was a lot of fun. Incidentally, little uh, not even an Easter egg, but just a a inside uh, behind the curtain peek. Um, the the name I gave in the script to the feral child was Neil, but for no reason at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like there's, I just kind of like picked the name out of the hat. I'm like, you know what, Neil? Why not? So in the script, whenever he had notes or anything, he's like, yeah, his name's Neil, and it's like, no, it's he's just he he doesn't really have a name, but it's Neil. <laughs> Pretend that's like that's what his parents called him, before, you know, in the days before they died or whatever. Um, <laughs> he, he he was he was a baby, and his name was Neil, and then. Yeah. Um, and shit went sideways died. and then shit went sideways. And then he, yeah, I mean, that's what happens. You know, kids don't have language. They don't, they know how to survive, but they have no concept of like, they're, they're barely human. They haven't been raised with the ability to learn like all those other stories of feral children. They don't end well. The best ones about the best feral child, the best outcome for a feral child in most of the Western world is like, they end up in a care home for the rest of their lives. It's really fucking depressing. <laughs> um, yeah, I remember seeing a documentary in like high school about uh, some girl who had been horribly abused by her dad and finally found at the age of 10 and she didn't know how to speak or how to interact with people. And it's like, oh, boy, the world sure is horrible, isn't it? Uh, um, dude, that, that <laughs> was just uh, Nell with Jodie Foster. I'm, I'm yeah, sorry, well, that's it wasn't a documentary. No, no, there was that. There was Nell. I, and I saw Nell. <laughs> I saw Nell as well. No, this was um, uh, Jeannie. Something about like, the girl's name was Jeannie. Um, and I don't remember what the actual title of the thing was, but it was actually a documentary about a real. Yeah, no, Nell was another one that I've seen. Where he's like talking on the mirror and it's like, oh, she has a twin sister. It's that the twin sister died and all that other shit. I don't know. Um, it was a while ago. But no, Nell, <laughs> Nell was another movie that I did watch. I do. I mean, watching fiction for research is maybe not the best idea because, of course, <laughs> you're not going to get an accurate picture. But in some cases, like in some ways, there are elements to be gleaned from fiction of like, oh, yeah, this is how this world is going to look. I mean, Children of Men, for example. God, you want to talk about like the look of that comic? A lot of that came from Children of Men because it wasn't nothing had been blown up. Nothing had been like overtaken or destroyed by war. It was just neglect. It was just everything had been left by the side of the road and you know, disintegrated over time. Like that's, that's where 90% of the, the visual inspiration, at least on my end, um, I can't speak for what Nuno looked at. I did recommend stuff like children to men, um, to him, but he had his own, uh, resources as well. And like, 
obviously it turned out great. So <laughs> I don't know what he used, but it was good. Um, yeah, no, it, uh, fiction. Now, where were we? How did we start down this path? Yeah, the feral child. Thank you. I mean, it that that issue was a really fun one to do. Fun. I mean, as fun as any of the series was. <laughs> um, it was fun because it was its own thing. It was it could stand on its own. Uh, I didn't have to worry too much about the ongoing stuff, and you know, it it could just have a very nice horrible ending. <laughs> and and uh, oh, well, uh, speaking of endings, and not necessarily the the ending to issue three, which you're right was horrible, but you know, it <laughs> it, it made it made sense for the story, right? Yeah, and that's all that matters. <laughs> um, you talked about going into the project at some point with a different vision for the ending. Um, but I, I, I can certainly comment on the one you you have. To me, and you, you you talk about pretentious, like you know, literature quotes, right? I thought if you if you wanted one that was a bit more uh, accessible to to some extent, the one that stuck out to me was the the last quote from uh, Animal Farm, like the last line, like you know. Uh, the pigs look to each other and the the people and they were indistinguishable from one another. Um, but that last panel in the book, uh, as basically like you, you have these two kids look at each other and it's just like, they are the adults now. Like this is this, the, the culture of war that was developed, uh, you know, by the, by the adults who died before them has now been passed on to them this is what they will have and you know this is what they have to to live with i thought that was a very powerful moment um and so i'm curious as to how that that is different than sort of the the original ending you envisioned well so i should say like when i say ending i mean like at the end of the 20 issues uh, oh <laughs> yeah so <laughs> this is i mean i was still writing this with the assumption of like if it goes really good, I can do more volumes. So this ending is not the ending. It sort of is, but it's not. Um, <laughs> this ending is a, is is the it's the beginning of something new. No, it's um, <laughs> this ending is not intended to be the 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 capstone on the whole affair. It's more intended to be this is the end of the first act or so. Um, no, the overall ending was more. It was more in line with older post-apocalyptic tropes that I'd read. And I think at the time it was because I just hadn't had as much experience. And I hadn't really thought as deeply about how I, how I thought their story would end best. It was more, I mean, and it was a thing where I eventually read uh, a post-apocalyptic sci-fi novel that basically had that exact same ending <laughs> slightly tweaked. And I'm like, Oh, you know, if people have already done it, like, fuck, I don't want to do that. So <laughs> it, it just made me realize that I wasn't really thinking as, as broad as I could have. Um, there's a, I mean, there's a, there's a persistent notion, particularly in modern media where like, Oh, if the audience can guess how it's going to end, then we got to change it. Cause we can never live up to expectations. And that's why game of Thrones fucking sucked. Um, I actually, I never watched game of Thrones. This is just the narrative that I keep hearing from people, but Same. Like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, there we go. Um, I love the Lindsay Ellis videos on about game of Thrones, but they don't, I don't fucking know what they mean, but, um, but yeah, with Game of Thrones, like they, I think from what people have said, they tried really hard to subvert expectations, which just came up with a story that doesn't really make sense. And like the arc of a story should make sense. Like because it's, you know, you're watching a ball being thrown into the air. You'll probably be able to predict pretty well where it's going to land by the time it gets a few feet from the ground. Like 
you're you're gonna see some of it coming. Not everything, and stories should and can surprise you, but like changing things up just for the sake of doing something new is not a good idea. But at the same time, if all I'm doing is replicating a previous story from a previous generation, like what's the point? I wanted to do something that felt a little more modern, not even modern, just like for a a different meaning for a different generation. One of the books that I read actually, when I was doing, again, when I was doing my research, um, there was a book called Only Lovers Left Alive, which has nothing to do with the movie of that title, by the way. Um, there's a movie of that title with like Tilda Swinton and it's vampires and it's very weird. But this was a novel from the 60s where it's, uh, it, again, all the adults die. But in this situation, it's from mass suicides. Like suddenly, basically every adult human being just basically gets really depressed and over the course of a few months they just all kill themselves and there's some sort of abortive attempts to prop up society but eventually it's just like well teenage wasteland baby but it's very so so the happening without trees yeah you know what that's very much it yeah it it was just kind of like you know there's these uh, the first third of the book is basically this extended thing of all the adults dying off one by one one way or another until eventually you know gangs of uh motorcycle riding hoodlums rule the streets and it's a little bit mad max and that's i mean to be fair i don't know much about the author but it strikes me very much as a novel that would have been written because of those darn kids (laughs) or it's very much i mean it's a moment it's written in a moment in time that's very much about teenagerhood and about teenagers and growing up this is also of course the era of clockwork orange so like it fits very well into that structure although it's not as nearly as well written but it fits very much into that idea of like violence as this spasm of last spasm of teenagerhood before becoming an adult and that's that ending and that probably worked fine for that book in the 60s but it's not the way that those stories work now like when we look at these stories now we think about you know we ask the questions like what does it really look like if our kids today were to try and build society tomorrow um there's another there's another book which I haven't read because it only came out a couple of months ago. The Ted Lieu book. Um, I am forgetting the name. That's not the title. I'm just forgetting the name. Uh, he wrote a book just to, just within the past couple of months about like. Uh, no, wait, Ted Lieu is the representative for California. Shit. Yeah. Who's the, <laughs> who's the author? <laughs> Shoot. Uh, the guy who wrote the three body problem. Um, <laughs> he. uh uh, no, wait, that's not him either. Oh, who the fuck am I thinking of? I don't know. Um, Ken Liu. Ken Liu. That's all right. There we go. He wrote a book. Um, he wrote a book in which it's uh, wait, am I even am I still not thinking of the right guy? Fuck me sideways. I don't I, care. I, I can't help you. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's I'm I'm failing here. Some some guy wrote a some book. Some frigging guy. Some, some frigging guy. Um wrote a book. I'm going to feel like a real idiot when this goes live and people are emailing me the answer. Um, Someone wrote a novel in which the story is basically some supernova, some cosmic event has sent out radiation that will kill all adult human beings within like a year. Um, But kids, for some reason, it doesn't affect. So basically humans have have a year to get their shit in order and teach their kids how to run the earth. And that's a very cool idea. And I haven't read it yet, although I'd really like to. But I don't want to influence any future writings of orphanage or anything. But, um, but that's a very that's a, again a slightly different take on it because it's it's about you know how do we educate our kids? What do they learn from us consciously and unconsciously? And that's something that comes out of orphanage as well. It's like how do kids learn what the world looks like? And it's you know what's what they observe. It's what we tell them. It's what they know. It's what they think they've read in books. Um, 
and all those the factories go into how they continuous how the world is continuously rebuilt every year. It's just that this time the the chain of civilization, to use a phrase that sounds like it comes out of a Senate speech in the 1800s, the chain of civilization has been broken, and there's a there's a whole new world that has had to have been built. So. Oh, anyway, <laughs> sorry, I went on a whole tangent there, didn't I? I, I it, it, remember, we can always blame the caffeine. Yeah, I, you know, I have, I not just, it's not just Mountain Dew. It's, um, it's, it's two different types of Mountain Dew into the same glass. It's the blue stuff and the orange stuff. It's really good. Try it sometime. Ted Chang, that's the guy's name. Fuck me. All right. I feel really terrible now that I didn't get that name right. Anyway, no, wait. What? what? No, what kind of a only... madman? Hold on, hold on. Now, what kind of a madman am I dealing with that not only are you drinking uh, what Baja Blast and and no, Lime the, Livewire the Voltage and Livewire actually? Oh, Baja Voltage Blast. and Livewire. It's hard to get. It's hard to get uh, uh, Baja Blast in some places. Like they have it at Taco Bell, obviously, but like you know, a case of it. That's that shit's coveted, man. <laughs> are you like are you stockpiling live wire i mean last oh, well, i knew like i had to i had to drive to tennessee you know tennessee like being like hillbilly orange country because uh, <laughs> i ha- i had a friend that was like really really into live wire um and i was like well every time i go through tennessee i'll pick up you know i'll pick some up for him and then here you are just like mixing the two like wh- what what kind of savage are you <laughs> I'm My a God, man! <laughs> I'm a savage who loves his soda. That's what it is. Uh, God, wow! Oh, I, I just—it's—it's the cafe. Like, here's the thing. I mean, I also drink a lot of Diet Mountain Dew because I, you know, don't want to kill myself before I'm forty. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I do. I mean, I just—I really. It's also, to some degree, almost certainly a, um, uh almost certainly a self-medication thing for ADHD because I know that there's a lot of people who have ADHD who self-medicate with various forms of stimulus or stimulants. <laughs> now I'm also losing my tongue control, of my tongue. So I think I'm probably hitting the point where I need to sleep at some point. Um, but <laughs> that's all right. I have another three hours of questions ready Woo! here to go. Nice. Going to be uh, up all night. Woo baby. Uh, I got cases, man. I still got cases to go, but, um, I'm still looking for the name of that author, by the way, because I feel like such an asshole that I can't remember it. Um, what was the question? Caffeine. Yes. Uh, I also don't worry about my teeth. I went to the, I went to the dentist on Friday and apparently my teeth are excellent. Um, what was the question? Where were we? How did we even get here? Oh, um, let's see. You were, um, I don't know. I, I, I think we're both lost. Yeah, uh, I'm still I'm still processing this uh, <laughs> uh, live wire and um, not Baja Bla- uh, voltage. There we voltage. go. I, I can't I can't process that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We're going to have to agree to disagree there. Yeah. Uh, no, only only one, you know, exotic Mountain Dew at a time. <laughs> I All still right? have a few. I still have a few, a handful of the special Christmas ones that you did. Or maybe it was Thanksgiving where it's like cranberry flavored. Oh, get the uh, fuck out of here. I'm hoarding those, baby. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I, Orphanage is... Uh, someone actually asked me a question on a, in a different interview about sort of 
I forget. I answered it with with an idea of like optimism and pessimism. I forget what the actual question was, but it was about my two projects for, for uh, Aftershock so far. Um, uh, the Moth and Whisper and Orphan Age. And the thing about it is Orphan Age, despite being post-apocalyptic, is really the more optimistic project because it's about the possibility that the world can still be rebuilt, that there are still things that can be done to make it better, that the systems are are under threat but are you know in no way finished yet and i think that's the thing that that matters the most to me about this project and a lot of my other projects is that it's it's about a world that can still be fixed because god damn it i like to believe that it is um and it's it, 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 moth and whisper which i know we haven't talked about but moth and whisper was definitely more about a world that is fucked up and falling apart and most of the leadership is corrupt and everything's happening all at once and that was actually more of a depressing experience in some ways to write because it's like, well, hey, we're already living through Act One, baby. But uh, Orphanage was honestly a little more hopeful because it's like, well, the slate has at least been wiped clean. And yes, millions upon millions and probably billions of people are dead. I did the math once. But <laughs> uh, hey, you know, at least we get a chance to at least the environment isn't being fucked up anymore. So um yeah, I did. I did the math. Actually, I did a little bit of math to try and figure out exactly how many people would still be alive after all these various events. And it's like, well, under preteens comprise approximately like 10 percent of the global population. Then you figure so many of them died after the first couple winters and then they probably reproduced a little. So their numbers are probably around this. You know, I got I got the numbers somewhere in some yeah, documenter. I, I I really loved your breakdown in issue two. Like, well, the, the kids who went for the ice cream and the potato that, chips, they died first. <laughs> That and was they, sorry. That no, was no, no, no. You, you go ahead. That was an improvisation. I mean, that was not uh, improvisation. Isn't quite the right word, but that was not a a a digression that I had come into. Uh, like I had I had thought I was going to be writing that from from the start. Like that was not something I'm like, oh, this is how I'm going to. This is the conversation that's going to happen on issue two. It just was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. This is someone who's speaking from a very specific perspective. Someone who is a, you can call him a salesman. <laughs> you can call him somebody who sells things. Who has a perspective on the material world and the, the material. A smooth operator. A smooth operator and someone who has done things in order to ensure the continuity of his life and his family. Um. And of course, he has a view on the and of course he has a view on the world that is materialistic, not in like the greedy sense, but just in the sense of like our lives are shaped by our material culture and our desires. And whether or not he's right is his own, you know, further question and further digression. And frankly, I uh, I feel like I could have gone into it more, but that book is already talky enough. I really, by the way, I really cut down my talky nature in these books. In case you can't tell, I'm a person who likes words. Um, <laughs> and I was very proud of the fact that issue two, uh, of that comic was the first one in, in which there's a page that doesn't have a single or no, maybe there's one dialogue line on it. There's the bit where she goes over to grab the gun out of the, out of the pile, um, and like leave a dollar on top of it. And I, uh, there's either one line of dialogue or no dialogue at all. And I'm like, Hey, I finally turned the corner on my addiction. <laughs> so, so he, here's the thing with that, right? Um, there's a scale of basically uh, no words to Bendis. And <laughs> Bendis is the only guy who can get away with being Bendis because it's it's charming at this point. Um, <laughs> I'd say you are well below like that Bendis threshold. So you're doing all right. You're doing yeah. all right. <laughs> I, you know, I'm writing something else right now. 
uh, that like I really I'm gonna have to go back to this thing with a baseball bat and just like knock out sentences left and right because I'm I know I know I'm going over for it. But yeah, it's a tendency that I wanted to pull back, especially because I I've mentioned it before and I'll mention him again. Luno Plotti did such amazing work on the visuals of this that I really hated to cover up so much of it because God, his he his art is fantastic and he, I'm so happy to be working with him. And we've been Dude and I have been talking about a totally different project which may or may not happen, but we're tinkering with that at the moment. So that might be a thing that might happen separate from Orphan Age, which also might, who knows, you know. <laughs> like I said, probably better than even odds, but uh, uh, I'm doing a shrug motion. Uh, you can't it, see it. Everything's kind of up in the air right now. Yeah, who would know that a global pandemic would throw everything into such chaos? I, mean, I know, right? <laughs> I do. I, I'm trying to remain positive because... God damn, of course I need to in this world. It's the only way for me to say stay sane on top of the pills that I've, you know, been taking for the last <clears throat> 20 years or whatever. Um, <laughs> but like optimism is the only real way to survive, because if you're optimistic, you will keep trying. And if you're not optimistic, you stop trying. And if everyone stops trying, it all goes to shit. That's my that's my capstone on this whole my whole feeling it's like the the key to keep the what's no actually i do have a better capstone remember how i said i kept collecting quotes there's a uh there's a winston churchill quote that's pretty classic uh if you're going through hell keep going there you go yeah well, that's <laughs> that is that is the only way to keep with it man it's like keep on keeping on even if the rest of the world is hoarding toilet paper and bathing in lysol <laughs> Hey, as long as you're not drinking it, right? Yeah, don't, don't, don't drink it. That's the uh, that's the other advantage of drinking so much Mountain Dew. It's probably preserving my organs nicely. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> uh, pickling everything. Um, uh, well, I, I will tell you, I'm I'm absolutely rooting for a second, third, and fourth volumes here. I, I've got kind of like an all time list of books that 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 wanted another volume, that needed another volume, and <clears throat> uh, Limbo. Uh, Casper Wingard, Dan Waters, that's on there. Uh, Warlords of Appalachia, Philip K. Johnson, and then I think Orphan Age is right there with them. So, um, thank you. I, I I hope you get that. And uh, hey, if if you say better than fifty percent, I'll I'll believe you. And I mean, and, I was an English major, not a math major. So for all I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you reflect on it? Um, not necessarily right now facing this <laughs> pandemic, but you know, like, you know, more or less a year removed, a year removed. I, I mean, I'm happy with it. I I'm happy with the fact that I was able to get it out in the way that it's looking. Um, it came out different than I was planning, but that is of course, always the way it is. You can never really judge a book until you've actually finished writing it and seen it on the stands. And the things that you thought would be important have turned out to just be so much smoke and noise. And the things that you thought would be nothing at all have turned out to be the crucial linchpins of the whole project. So it's complete and utter unpredictability. Um, I, I do. I mean, I, I think I was a little bit naive about how, whether or not it was going to get further volumes because I did leave it in a place that doesn't feel very natural. Um, cause there's bits that have been set up in this thing that aren't, that wouldn't be paid off until, you know, the last issues. And as such, it does feel incomplete, which is not necessarily a bad thing unless it stays incomplete. Um, I don't know. I feel like 
it's it's a very it's a story that is in some ways very much of its time in that it is at a time when we were worrying so much about what the future holds it's it's about here's what our children will do in this situation it's about here's the here's the lessons that we are unconsciously passing on right now so in that sense it's a it's a it's a very current project which is both a good thing and a bad thing. It means that it, you know, it speaks, it might speak to something right now. It also means that it might look very quaint 20 years from now or 30 years. Um, But it's, it's a, it's a very, in its current form, it's a very current story, which I think is, yeah, ups and downs. Um, Yeah. I want to finish it. Tell you that. (laughs) Uh, Is there anything we didn't get to that you think we should touch on? Oh God! Are you sure you don't want to talk about the My Little Pony issues? I mean, <laughs> that's—I mean—that's how I got started in comics. It's how I'm going to go out in comics. Actually, it's not how I'm going to go out in comics. The series has ended. Um, uh, no, I—I I do have. I mean, I have things that are like in six months. I'm going to be hyped up about, but like right now, I just can't say nothing. Um, I do have a book coming out in the fall that I can at least talk about. That it's coming out from Learner. Um, it's a, it's my first YA graphic novel. Uh, well, Moth and Whisper is YA, but it wasn't a graphic novel. Whatever. Um, it's called The Spy Who Raised Me. Uh, it's sort of a comedy, action, family drama kind of thing in bookstores and library shelves and everything. Uh, sometime this fall, I don't actually know when. Uh, artist is Gianna Miola. She's fantastic. It's going to be great. Um, and then apart from that, I have other things happening. I'll probably be going to work on Monday unless something else happens with my school district. Um yeah, <laughs> the, it's a middle the sun summer. will rise. It will probably snow at some point in Minnesota. The, there will come soft rains. Oh wait, no. Anyway, uh, yeah, the the future will happen, no matter how much we want it to stop. <laughs> and one way or another, it's not going to look like what we imagined. All right, let's hit those plugs again. Yeah. Okay. Um, Ted Lee Anderson, T-E-D-L-Y-A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N. Um, it was a college nickname. Uh, that's me on Twitter, on Tumblr, on a couple other places probably, but those are the places to follow. Twitter is probably the best place unless you like Tumblr, in which case go to my Tumblr. I occasionally reblog funny shit from people. Oh, and actually, if you really like my pony stuff or my work on Adventure Time, for example, I did annotations for some of my stuff on my Tumblr. So check out that stuff because I always think that's fascinating when other writers do it. So maybe I, maybe my stuff is fascinating too. Um yeah, it, I don't. Your your Tumblr is probably the only Tumblr that's not porn at this point, so <laughs> it's it's worth checking out. Uh, I don't know. I did post this MST3K thing. That's kind of no, not really. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, follow me on those. I don't really have a proper website. I probably probably fucking should at some point. Um, uh, and yeah, keep following me along because other stuff will be happening. It just is uh, unexpected as to when and how and where and so forth. <laughs> Sir, I wish you health and happiness and good luck in these uncertain times. It was an absolute pleasure. Hey, my pleasure as well. Thank you so much for having me on. I am really happy to have been part of this experiment and so forth. Uh, And yeah, I I look forward to hearing the results. I probably won't actually listen because I hate hearing myself, but you know. You know, I, I'm the same way, but then when I have to edit these episodes, I'm like, I say, I sound goddamn good. Yeah. 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 There we go. Thank you. Thank again, you well. again, sir. This has been my pleasure. Wasn't he fun? I thought he was fun. I, I enjoyed the hell out of talking to him. Um, 
it's always a bit of a crapshoot when I when I call up and and talk to people who I I've never talked to before for the podcast. As I answered for the the pod people uh, interview, I feel more pressure going in uh, to a podcast interview because I can I can fake a print interview. I can I can pull some quotes out of something. I can massage it. I can you know, I can make it work. But my God, if if Ted and I didn't have any chemistry. Uh, if he wasn't excited and eager to talk about uh, orphanage, I do not know where we would have gotten um, an interview out of that, or where we have would have possibly gone with it. So, thanks to him, I really, really, really hope uh, that we get volumes two, three, and four of orphanage. Okay, coming up next on the breezeway. My final thought for, oh boy, this uncertain time. Up next, on the breezeway. Does this sound like you? If you're feeling tired all the time, moody, sleepy, or even constipated and waning gait, buildup of waste, metallic taste in the mouth, or ammonia breath, nausea and vomiting, loss of appetite, not wanting to eat meat or other strong flavors, difficulty concentrating, feeling itchy, and feeling fatigue. Headaches, dizziness, blurry vision, chest pain, palpitations, which is when your heart beats really strangely, or shortness of breath. Making more or less urine than usual. Making urine that is foamy or bubbly. Feeling excess pressure when urinating. Changes in the overall color and appearance of the urine. And blood in the urine, which is usually only detected through a microscope. Hi, I'm Will Nevin, and I'm a doctor. So trust me when I say, if that sounds like you, then you need to go to WMQComics.com. Get yourself checked out. WMQComics.com. You'll make just the right amount of urine. for stopping in on this third official episode of the podcast. I, I appreciate you listening. This has been a difficult time for everyone. A difficult time for everyone who's been taking this virus seriously. And certainly being on social media, you have seen the people who have taken it seriously and you've seen the people who haven't taken it seriously. As an educator, 
as a college professor. I spent last week uh, wrapping up in quite an impromptu fashion uh, my in-person classes. And in times like this, in times of, of crisis and staring into the unknown, of uncertainty, I have always viewed my position as one of trying to offer some comfort and some strength and maybe even a little motivation as first and foremost beyond any possible thing I could teach them. Um, I very much look at my students as, and this is going to sound silly and maybe a little sentimental, but my kids, uh, because I have a responsibility to them. And Thursday, as I'm wrapping up my first class, uh, other classes would wrap up Friday, I, I, I have to think about what I'm going to tell them what I hope we're going to go into, um, you know, over these next couple of months. And so I think in my brain, well, of course, where else am I going to think? But I think about what exactly I want to tell them. And I tell them a story. The first time I told the story was several years ago at uh, one of my classes for the University of Alabama. Alabama had this weird little YouTube campus shooting threat scare, and it was a lot of nothing that a few people made something out of. And I I understood. I understood that base fear and its reaction, the reaction to that. But... I hated it. <laughs> I hated the idea that I would that students would see this this random YouTube comment that threatened this uh, you know a shooting on this large flagship campus and that they would somehow think that that was going to happen to them. Uh, again, it's not a, a rational response. I understand that. And and the university didn't really help it. There's like you know, if you guys are afraid to come to class, like you don't have to go to class. And it was it was just a very milquetoast response from everybody involved. And so I told my students at that time uh, a story. And it was a very personal story. And it was basically how I defined courage. And it basically went back to my my father and how he dealt with a terminal diagnosis of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It was the second time he had faced non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But the second time, he gets to a point in the disease where doctors tell him, okay, you have an infection that could rupture and kill you. So you will die if you do nothing. Or you could have a surgery, and the surgery might kill you. Dad opted for the surgery, and he did it without really consulting anyone else. Um, He did what he thought was best. 
And that was a courageous decision, at least as I view it. Courage is leaning into the unknown, leaning into a situation where outcomes may not be in your favor. And maybe you do not have all of the facts to know whether they will be in your favor, but you make the decisions that you have to. And I will always respect that. And so to me, courage is facing the unknown. Courage is holding your head up and dealing with a bad situation in the best way you can. And so I told my students uh, in our, again, our last face-to-face interaction that over these next few weeks and probably even months, courage, patience, and kindness will be radical acts that we will all face some amount of hardship and that it's in these moments, these trying times, that we define who we are and who we want to be. And so, listeners, I will tell you the same thing I told them. Let's let this time, this moment of uncertainty, let's have this define us and who we are and who we want to be. I wish you all health and happiness, and I sure hope to come back in a month and talk about how all of this was silly and about how we were all afraid and worried for nothing. I look forward to having that conversation with you next time here on The Breezeway. Thanks for stopping by.